Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Tension reigns as President Biden ponders how to punish the killing of three American service people in Jordan. I speak to U.S. Air Force vet and former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger about Biden's options at home and abroad. Then, this is my first grandchild. It's supposed to be happiness, she says, but I couldn't celebrate. Born into war, correspondent Jomana Karache reports on the tens of thousands of mothers and new babies at risk in Gaza. Also ahead. America and Christianity are like baseball and apple pie, and we celebrate them together. God and country, a new documentary puts Christian nationalism in the spotlight. Award-winning filmmaker Rob Reiner joins me. Plus, Chinese artist and activist Ai Weiwei tells Hari Srinivasan about his new graphic novel Zodiac, which explores the ongoing struggle for freedom of expression through art. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Wanpour in London. President Biden says he has decided how to respond to the attack which killed three U.S. troops in Jordan, but he's not yet provided details. It comes after Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned that the situation in the Middle East has not been this dangerous for 50 years. Hamas, meanwhile, says it's studying a proposal for a potential renewed truce and hostage deal, but insists on Israel's complete withdrawal from Gaza. So, what are Biden's options? Adam Kinzinger knows these issues on several levels, as a former Republican congressman and as a pilot still serving in the Air National Guard, and he's joining me from Texas. Welcome back to our program, Congressman. Um, can I first start by asking you about a very, very serious matter? You know, the president has got to decide whether he's going to take an action that could hit a sovereign state and ex expand what is a, a sort of a you know, a, a, a war in the Middle East right now, widening war. Yeah, I mean, look, it's going to be a tough decision no matter what he decides to do. Look, we have a longstanding position, and I think it's the right position that we will defend ourselves, that Americans have a, uh, a right to, to defend themselves if they're attacked, and we have a right to retaliate if our troops are attacked. And up to this point, with 160 attacks on American troops, you know, throughout the Middle East, We've been lucky to the point where there has been no loss of American soldiers' lives until this last attack. And that was uh, obviously very tragic with dozens injured. So he's going to have to make a decision. I think the thing to keep in mind is, of course, nobody, I don't even think Iran, is seeking to widen this war. But when we don't react, particularly on something as deadly as what happened, that is seen as weakness. As much as we'd like to think that we can now just you know, engage in a friendly negotiation with Iran and kind of get everybody to step back from the brink. That's not how it's worked. So uh, I don't envy the president's decision, whether he takes this directly to the uh, militias that did this or whether he expands this to, for instance, maritime assets with Iran. But I think it's going to have to be a significant strike to make it clear that any benefit you think you are gaining from attacking Americans in the region, the cost will actually far exceed any benefit. So with that, let me then ask you, Senator Lindsey Graham has tweeted, hit Iran now, hit them hard. Senator Cornyn writes, target Tehran. Um, 
you know, they all, the administration says we're not looking for a war with Iran. And you've laid out two scenarios that would, you know, exact punishment, but not directly hit the nation. Now, President Trump says the current situation would never have happened if he was president. But as you know, and as we all know, Americans were killed on his watch um, just before Rasem Soleimani was targeted. But he was hit outside Iran. Nonetheless, it was a major Iranian military and political figure. He didn't want full-out conf confrontation either. Yeah, I mean, look, so with, with former President Trump, I mean, uh, when he did kill Soleimani, that was actually a pretty brave thing to do. And there were a lot of folks that said, you know, oh, this is going to lead to World War III, and it didn't. And I think the lesson from that is uh, they will, it's the same as Vladimir Putin, they will advance until they hit a brick wall and they know they can go no further. That said, it's easy to tweet, if you're Lindsey Graham, it's easy to tweet just bomb uh, Iran because you don't have to make the decision. You can just be on whatever side as you want. And if you look in the GOP, uh, there's actually a big split. There's the bomb Iran now crew, and then there's the Joe Biden starting World War III crew. And instead of arguing with each other because they're on very different positions of this issue, they're all arguing against Joe Biden for some reason. Uh, let's see what he does here. But I think there is a way for him to have a significant response that is mm -hmm. tough. The key is we don't want to look like we're just reacting because we have to. A response that is tough that's not necessarily bombing the middle of Tehran and, and trying to expand the war further. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the other issue that is a big, well, one of the big issues around this Israel-Gaza war, the Houthis. Again, the U.S. And the, and the U.K. decided to take air action against their missile bases or whatever they have there in Yemen. Uh, it is one of the poorest places in the world. It is war-torn. The Houthis are non-state actors, and yet they seem to be winning not just the propaganda war, getting tons and tons of buy-in from young people all over the world, including in the United States, but they haven't stopped. So if the United States can't stop the Houthis, what can they do about Iran and its other backed militias? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a tough question, and it's all about what level of force are we willing to use. Now, look, force doesn't solve everything. And, you know, we saw in Afghanistan the United States won't be defeated when it comes to the military, the U.S. and the U.K. particularly. We can be defeated in our will. And so with the Houthis, for instance, we've attacked them a number of times. We've taken out some of their anti-ship missiles as they, as they have stood up, but they're still attacking. This is a long-term process to degrade their ability to do this. And even if they're going to continue to fire at ships, one of the things we're showing is that the cost is not nothing. You want to fire one anti-ship missile, it's going to cost you three or four if we respond to that. That's important to look at this deterrence as a long-game strategy. The problem is we kind of live in this moment where it feels like we, when we strike something once, we have to actually see immediate results. That's mm -hmm. not necessarily the case, but that willingness, that will to stick it out is important. In terms of the youth, look, I have a huge problem with what's happening on TikTok. That's been litigated 100 times in the, in the political side of things. But there is there is a failure somewhere in our education system that there are people that are showing, you know, sympathy to the Houthis and actually heroism of the Houthis when they actually launched this attack against Israel and against shipping 
in the Red Sea out of whatever, some sense of brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And it is precisely uh, their anti, as they say, anti-Zion and anti-US message that is resonating around the region. And as you say, amongst some in the United States and in the West. So given that the Gaza Israel situation is the context and the frame for all of this heightened activity right now. You know, yes, there's meant to be negotiations going on for a pause and more hostage prisoner swaps. But what about the pressure on President Gaza? A lot of political, sorry, on President Biden, a lot of political pressure on him. Do you think the White House expected this much pushback at home and abroad for its support of Israel? I don't think they did. Um, and I think, you know, they've so far done a good job of kind of resisting that pressure. I mean, let's keep in mind, this is only three or so months ago that this war was kicked off. I mean, really, this was kicked off on October 7th with a brutal attack on civilians. Uh, I think the administration has played a good role in terms of trying to prevent the escalation against Hezbollah in the north. It seems like they have been able to walk Israel back, at least for the time being, and some of that. Uh, continuing to stress to Israel the importance of precision bombing. Ground troops, by the way, are about the most precision way to execute a war because you have people on the ground and, and not just in the air. But this is going to take some time as well. And, and I think the administration did not see the... I, I don't think any... Look, I, I'm blown away that there's the pushback that there is. When I just look at October 7th and how evil that day was... And now say that there are people that are blaming Israel for all this. Look, you can disagree with how Israel is executing a war. I'll remind you, as you well know, uh, when we fought ISIS, the entire city of Mosul was destroyed. The difference is the people in Mosul had a place to go. Right now, uh, Egypt and Jordan have shut the borders to Gaza. And so their people don't have a place to go. There's a lot of issues here. But I'm going to tell you, if the United States was attacked like they were on October 7th, we wouldn't be talking about a ceasefire until this was done. Okay, so how then this demands a follow-up. What does that mean until this was done? And you also, as a former Air Force pilot, know that often you can't do what you're trying to do just from the air. So if there, there seems to be negotiations yeah. underway now, serious, um, to have a truce or have a pause or whatever and do a whole new round of mega hostages for Palestinian prisoners swap. Yeah, that's a good thing. Look, all wars end in negotiation. I mean, even the end of World War II, when Germany was occupied, there was a version of negotiation to end that. And so negotiations are good. And I think it's important if Israel can negotiate a ceasefire or an end to hostilities on a place where it feels that it can defend itself. That's the key. The danger in any kind of a war, whether you started it or you didn't, is putting out a goal that's unachievable. The entire destruction of Hamas, I would love to see that. But as long as there's one person that self-declares themselves Hamas, you can't necessarily destroy all of Hamas. So the ability to degrade Hamas, pre prevent you know, attacks and try to bring in a different government to Gaza would be important. So negotiations are good. This may, this current situation may not lead to anything, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't stop, that they should stop negotiating. They should continue it because inevitably that's how this has to end. Uh, on another major war that really has an even bigger existential uh you know, component to it, Ukraine, Russia, right? Russia is threatening democracy around the world uh, and killing so many people in Ukraine. And I know you support aid to Ukraine. You also support 
Uh, you're in Texas now, you know, toughening up on the border. I know that you were down there, uh, deployed there in 2019. But what do you make of your party linking these two issues uh, and then the leading candidate to be your party's next nominee scuttling the whole thing just as, as it seemed to be on the verge of producing some bipartisan agreement? Yeah, I mean, it's a joke. The, the whole party has become a joke in terms of what it's going for. It pretends to be a party of policy. When I was in there, in the, I was in Congress 12 years, the early part of my congressional career, yeah, we were focused on policy. That mattered. Just four or five months ago, the GOP kind of sadly, quote unquote, you know, tanked Ukraine aid in order to get a border change because they needed a change in policy, in legislation. Now, President Biden has come forward and said, OK, I'm basically going to give you everything you've asked for. And now the Republican position, after Donald Trump said he wants this issue politically, the Republican position has been, we don't need to change policy. The president can do this on his own already. It's not a serious party. Linking the issue of Ukraine and the border is very bad and very wrong. They're very different issues. Regardless, they were linked. Former, or the current president gave them a lot on this, and they're walking away. This is an opportunity for the Democrats. They're not going to be able to change to flip the script against the GOP in just 10 months on the border issue. They can make some real gains on it. They can be out there calling for border security and saying the Republicans are unwilling to work with us. And I think it is so important to continue to talk to the American people about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. This is an existential threat, not just to Ukraine, but to the American people. And that needs to be better explained. Indeed. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thank you very much indeed for joining us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your sleep number setting. Sleep number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All sleep number smart beds feature cooling, pressure relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. JD Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 50% on sleep number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the regional tensions worsen amid the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. Two weeks ago, the UN's aid chief, Martin Griffiths, told me that hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are starving even now. And now a physical therapist displaced to Rafa tells CNN that people in northern Gaza, quote, eat grass and drink polluted water 
to survive. The desperation is especially grave for pregnant women and newborn babies, as correspondent Jomana Karadshe reports. Born into this world all alone, no parents by her side. Only a stranger's touch for the baby with no name. Delivered by C-section last month to a mother already gone, fatally injured in an explosion. She's been in an incubator since, stable now, but still fragile, doctors say. She's one of the nearly 20,000 born into this war. Every 10 minutes, a baby is born in Gaza, the UN says. Gaza is where the blessings of life are now a curse. Um Yezan is five months pregnant. Like most Gazans, her family's homeless. This, the toilets of a school turned shelter, is where they live. This is our life in the toilets, Um Yezan says. We lay our mattresses and sleep here. Um Yezan and her husband can hardly feed their children. There's not enough for their unborn child. I'm in my fifth month craving foods, but there's no food, no flour, nothing, she says. She's not had her iron supplements, not even a checkup in months. We wanted to check if there's a heartbeat, but there are no hospitals. They're only dealing with emergencies, she says. There are no scans to see if the baby's alive or not. Life is non-existent for pregnant women. Gaza's few remaining hospitals are overwhelmed with the seemingly endless flood of war casualties. There's no chance of carrying out routine care and the estimated 50,000 pregnant women and their unborn babies are left out in the cold. Their already precarious situation before the war now dramatically worse. About 40% of all pregnancies are now high-risk, aid groups say. Miscarriages, stillbirths, preterm labor and maternal mortality are much more likely. For first-time mothers like Hiam, the excitement is overshadowed by this miserable existence that's now her life, soon to be her babies. Being pregnant with your first child should be nice. You eat, you rest, you sleep. But I didn't get any of that, Hiam says. Instead, she's had to flee several times, taking shelter in overcrowded hospitals, walking miles searching for safety. After walking for many hours, I was exhausted, she says. The baby was very weak. They told me I should be staying in the hospital, but there was no room, so I had to leave. She's now in this tent, sleeping on a sand floor. How will I give birth in war? when I have nothing for the baby, no formula, no diapers. We are in a tent and it's very cold for us. What will life be like for a tiny baby born into these conditions? It's hell. This burnt out classroom in what's left of northern Gaza is the only shelter Nujud could find. She barely made it through the bombardment and labor, now struggling to keep her newborn healthy, clean and warm. We want to clean the classroom, but there's no disinfectant, Nujud says. There's no health care, no clinics, no vaccinations for the baby. War has separated Nujud from her husband. She's only been able to reach him once when she told him they had a baby girl, Habiba. Nujud's mother spends her days trying to find what she can to feed her daughter. This is my first grandchild. It's supposed to be happiness, she says. But I couldn't celebrate. I wanted to prepare so many things for her to celebrate her arrival, my precious first granddaughter. She didn't even get the new clothes I bought her. It's never been harder to be a mother in Gaza. 
All you can do is hold your baby tight and hope you both survive this nightmare. Shomana Karadshe there, and certainly the civilians in Gaza and the Israeli families who are waiting for their hostages to be reunited with them want some kind of, 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 of progress in these negotiations that are happening right now. Now, extremism affects almost all religions in that region and in the United States. A key part of former President Trump's base isn't just evangelical voters, but more specifically, what our next guest would call Christian nationalists, who are in fact a political movement. A little remark fact since the January 6th Capitol insurrection was the presence of so much Christian iconography and biblical references as the mob inside claimed to be defending Christian supremacy in America. The celebrated film director Rob Reiner has explored this phenomenon in his documentary, God and Country. Here's a clip. Christian nationalism uses Christianity as a means to an end, that end being some form of authoritarianism. Being a Christian is about the values of inclusion. Christian nationalism is certainly not based on the values of the gospel. God wants America to be saved. They're told over and over and over again that you're in danger. You need to fight if you don't want to lose your country. We are in a civil war between good and evil. This is not a movement about Christian values. This is about Christian power. Rob Ryan is best known for directing such classics as A Few Good Men, When Harry Met Sally, and This Is Spinal Tap. Indeed, he's filming the long-awaited sequel now in New Orleans, where he joined me to discuss his other passion, trying to understand and to warn Americans about a rising nationalism masquerading as true faith. Rob Reiner, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What inspired you to do God and Country about Christian nationalism as a documentary? Because obviously you're really, really, really well known for your fantastic films. Well, you know, I, I've kind of known about this movement for, for quite a while. I mean, back in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, Norman Lear uh, launched an organization called People for the American Way, which focused on this idea that uh, the Christian right was going to dictate uh, what we should listen to, uh, what we should not listen to. And uh, it was very disturbing to him. And as time went by, uh, I saw this movement grow, but I didn't realize how powerful it was and how well organized and well funded it was until I uh, read this book called The Power Worshippers by, uh, by Catherine Stewart. And I then realized that this has uh, taken root far more, uh, far more deeply than I had ever thought. So you mentioned Norman Lear, just for our international audience, just want to point out he was the great TV pioneer, creator of all sorts of things, um, including All in the Family. And he recently died at the grand old age of 101. Um, he was, that was your breakthrough series, that, that television series. But back to this, because we'll talk about him in a little bit. You know, we've all known about the power of America's, you know, right-wing fringe, its Christian evangelicals, how they helped propel Trump, of all people, uh, into the White House. But I think for me, what was so new about what you did was the notion of nationalism and particularly how that really was on display at the insurrection at the Capitol. I'd never focused on all those imageries that you show and you focus on, all those people waving crosses and speaking Bible verses and the like. 
Yes. Well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that it, you know, they, 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 they go into the guise of a religious movement, but it really isn't. It's a political movement. It's all about gaining power. It's all about uh, forcing your way of thinking on, on others. And you're right. I mean, most people didn't focus on the fact that there was this uh, Christian nationalist undercurrent to the uh, insurrection on January 6th. But if you look closely, uh, not only are there the, the images that you point out, but there was an organizing uh, tool. They organized the buses that got there. Uh, we're not saying that every person who stormed the Capitol was a Christian nationalist, but it was the foundation mm -hmm. for uh, the movement on January 6th. So let me ask you, what then is the proportion or the distinction between American Christians and American Christian nationalists? Um, do they work together? Do they work in opposition to each other? Well, that's a great question, because when you see the documentary, you'll realize that we're not bashing Christianity at all. It's the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, we have some of the most uh, conservative Christian thinkers, uh, theologians, uh, people who are devout uh, to their faith, uh, talking about the danger of Christian nationalism, not just to democracy, but to Christianity itself. And unfortunately, you have a lot of uh, well-meaning Christians who uh, do uh, practice their faith and are devout in what they believe, getting swept up in this uh, Christian nationalist movement, which is essentially, as I pointed out before, a political movement, mm -hmm. not a religious movement. Yeah, and, and frankly, if I could paraphrase that, it's about power, not religion. And one of your experts in the film says, if democracy gets in the way of Christian power, democracy has to go. So I am going to play one of the clips, because you have so many, uh, you know, really distinguished Christian experts. Um, here's a clip of Russell Moore. He's the editor of Christianity Today. Now, he left a position, a senior position, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention to protest this denomination's, you know, power politics. Here's what, here's, here's a bit of the, uh, the soundbite. The Bible does depict a warrior Jesus just with a very different kind of warfare. The warfare takes place spiritually through the means of the gospel, not through uh, physical violence. In the New Testament, Jesus repudiated that when his own disciple, Peter, pulled out the sword to defend him from being arrested. And Jesus said, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. So, Rob Reiner, why do you think it is that Christian nationalists overlook that biblical teaching and, you know, they really get vociferous about all the sort of culture wars, whether it be abortion, LGBTQ, even even women's rights. Because I think, you know, when you look at the the teachings of Jesus, uh, that gets in the way of uh, this political movement, because uh, they they have to resort. You should resort to persuasion to using your faith. And there's nothing wrong with using, uh, having your faith inform the way which you think about policy. That's okay. When you take it the next step and say, you are doing something in the name of Jesus, you are acting violently in the name of Jesus, that's when you are going far afield from the teachings of Jesus. And these people are, like we've said many, many times, it's a power movement. It's a political movement, and it's their way of the highway. And unfortunately, it can cause the exact opposite of what you what the founding fathers 
uh, intended, which mm -hmm. is to have uh, religious freedom, to, to have the Constitution, which, by the way, they don't believe in the separation of church and state. They believe that it's not in the Constitution and that America was founded as a Christian nation and they want it to remain and or to become. And, you know, in contra in to the fact that we are a, uh, a, a melting pot of society, we are more diverse than we ever have been. Mm -hmm. They want this to be a white Christian nation. They believe it's their right and they're doing anything in their power in the name of Jesus to make that happen. And we have to say here, yes, America historically is the great melting pot. But right now you're seeing that the idea of immigration is a major motivator, certainly for the Republicans, certainly for Trump, who's called, you know, immigrants, you know, poisoning the blood of Americans. So I'm sure that plays into all this white Christian nationalist supremacy. But I do want to ask you particularly about the separation of church and state, because they grab onto that as a reason for it. To ha so the Constitution does not say it, right? Uh, that is true. But what, you know, where it does appear is in 1802 in a letter by Thomas Jefferson, uh, the First Amendment, he calls a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, the First Amendment, as we know, says that sh there should be no law establishing religion. Uh, Article 5 says no religious test ever for uh, high office, etc. How does one convince in this era of not only fake news, but supremacy minority politics that actually they're not right by the Constitution, by the laws of the land. Well, you're exactly right. The words separation of church and state, they themselves do not appear in the Constitution. But there are three references. There are three indications. And we have a constitutional scholar in the film walking you through it. Three times it is mentioned in the Constitution that the government will make no religion. In the First Amendment, it gives you the free right to practice religion however you please. They said there'll be no religious test to hold office. And we know, based on all of the uh, writings of the Founding Fathers, that the reason they wanted that was because they were breaking away from per religious persecution. And our Constitution is the only one in the world that starts with we the people. Mm -hmm. It gives the power to the people, not to a deity. And there is a clear separation of church and state in the Constitution as throughout. Just for people's knowledge, when did all the sort of God stuff appear on, on coins and in schools and in God we trust and all of that kind of stuff? Well, in, I remember very distinctly because I was in grade school in 1954. Uh, they added... Uh, to the Pledge of Allegiance. It used to be one nation indivisible. They added one nation under God indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And that was added in, in 1954. And the coins, I, I can't remember exactly yeah. what dates the coins were, but the point is, that's okay. In God we trust is okay, but we're not saying what the God is. We're not saying it's a Christian God, it's a Jewish God, it's a Muslim God. We're, they're saying in God we trust. In other words, it's okay to, to have God in your life and have uh, religion in your life. You just can't specify which religion this is. And that's what Christian nationalism, they say they believe that this is a white Christian nation and it has to be, uh, uh, it, it is, is prescribed. It is ordained by God that, that this is 
that this is the case, and it's just not so. Let me just divert a little bit, because, you know, a Muslim God, a Jewish God, a Hindu God, a, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of different gods, Christian God. You know, there is a fear of a rising nationalism, again, not just Christian nationalism, but rising, you know, fascism, far-right extremism. We've got a lot of concerns about what might be happening in Europe, which may reflect themselves in upcoming uh, uh, EU elections. Your wife and yourself recently visited Auschwitz. Um, your wife, Michelle's mother, is a Holocaust survivor, and her entire family was lost at Auschwitz. I, I wonder, was that at all part of your concerns? Reflect on that given the work in this nationalist, on this nationalistic uh, politics that you've just done. Well, as a Jewish person, that is never very far from your thinking in terms of how things can very quickly uh, uh, move. We've heard that expression, uh, never again. And as a Jewish person, not only did my wife's uh, mother's family, she lost her entire family, my aunt, who was also in Auschwitz, lost her whole family uh, in the Holocaust. So it's never very far away from you. And you can see the earmarks of how this nationalism can take hold and can take hold very quickly. I mean, we in America, you know, we, we, we blanch at or we recoil at the idea of, ooh, they're going to institute Sharia law <laughs> as if we can't have that. Well, you know, Sharia law is a version of religious nationalism. And the same as uh, we're going to be a white Christian nation. It, it, it's the same. And you're right. We're seeing that spread throughout the world. And it's very dangerous. Right now, America is right at the uh, crossroads of whether or not this world starts uh, evolving into uh, an autocratic world as opposed to holding on to democracy. We're the oldest democracy in the world. We've been around for 249 years. Uh, we've had that many years of self-rule. And the election that you're seeing coming up in 2024 is going to be a, 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 a referendum on whether or not we want to maintain and hold on to our democracy, or do we want to give it over to uh, autocracy, fascism, or theocracy? Mm -hmm. So you referenced um, Norman Lear, and I just wanted to ask you about him because, you know, he created um, All in the Family. That was your breakout role. You were the son of the famous Archie Bunker. Um, and that was a different America. I mean, that was decades ago. I wonder whether you can reflect on what Archie's generation might have thought of Christian nationalism and this rise of autocracy. And by virtue of that, Norman Lear, what he meant to you and his incredibly pioneering creative ideas. Well, Norman, uh, you know, he recently passed away, as you said. Uh, he was 101. Uh, we did a tribute to him at the Emmys this past year, Sally Struthers and myself. And I talked about him. I used the Yiddish phrase. I said he was a kukluffel. And a kukluffel is a, is, a, is a ladle that stirs the pot. And that's what Norman did. He stirred the pot. He changed the, the landscape of uh, how we receive television. Uh, he talked about real people, real issues. He had political opponents going at each other. And I learned from him not only... Uh, how to make great and funny television and great funny movies. He was a supporter of mine, and he was like a second father to me. I loved him. I loved him dearly, and uh, it's, it's, it's sad to me that he had to go, but he left a tremendous legacy, which is that we 
can we should fight. We should fight for this freedom uh, of religion, of speech, uh, of our independence and, and, and protect the rule of law. He was a great he was a great man. And, and I, I miss him terribly. Um, I, I want to just ask you about what you're doing now. I think in New Orleans, you're filming the sequel to your legendary film, This is Spinal Tap. So how did you get all the band people together again? Well, uh, that, <laughs> it's very difficult. It's like herding cats. <laughs> it's like the, the, you know, it's like the, 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 uh, the, the House of Representatives. <laughs> no, but we, we've been asked over the years to, you know, do a sequel, do a sequel. And uh, we never wanted to do it until we had a, an idea that I think is going to work. And hopefully it does. If not, uh, you know, they'll stone me or something. <laughs> um, well, we'll wait to see. And I, I just want to end on your documentary again, because the premiere was at the U.S. Capitol. That's, you know, not a so subtle uh, place to have it, given what it focuses on. It's obviously coming out in a, in a couple of weeks from now. What was your intention by holding it there and actually releasing this at this time now? Well, the, holding it at the Capitol was a, was a, a, a great uh, idea by our distributor and our, our publicist, uh, Dan Berger, who from Oscilloscope, because we wanted to get the, the conversation started. We've also had a, recently had a screening in Dallas. We had one, uh, we'll have one in, 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 uh, in Florida, in Providence. We have screenings around the country. We want to get the conversation started. And particularly for uh, the Christian audience, which, like I say, we're not bashing Christianity. It is the exact opposite. We want people to start talking about it and see what this idea of Christian nationalism is, how to define it, and to find and and to to see that you might be swept up in something that you may not agree with. Mm -hmm. So we want people to start talking to each other, and that's why we had the screening at the Capitol. Amazing, Rob Reiner. Thank you so much, indeed. Thanks for having me. And Garden Country premieres in theaters on February 16th. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Now, when art meets activism, exiled Chinese dissident and renowned artist Ai Weiwei is known for challenging authoritarian politics through his work and was even detained in China for 81 days on charge of state subversion back in 2011. But it's not deterred his fight for intellectual freedom, a noble pursuit passed down to him by his late father, a celebrated poet. Now, Ai Weiwei is exploring that relationship and his own life story in a new graphic memoir, Zodiac. He tells Hari Srinivasan how those memories connect to stories of Chinese astrological signs. Christian, thanks. Ai Weiwei, thank you so much for being here. Uh, your latest book, Zodiac, is a graphic memoir. And I'm wondering, it's not just a comic book. We're talking about uh, part art history, part expression of your life. But why a graphic novel? When I grew up in communist society, probably the only 
chance to, to have some images in your hand. It's a, we call it a little people's book. It's, a, it's, a, it's about the size of your palm, and the, you read page by page. It's all about the revolutionary stories, which is very touching. And I still kind of memorize all the images. So I think a graphic novel, it comes uh, very handy because, uh, you know, because of the images. And the last language, uh, that's also important. It gave uh, people a lot of space for imagination. So if there's a young person that picks up this book today, uh, similar to what the graphic novels of your generation might have had, is there a purpose? Is there a point? Is there something you want a young person that might be reading this to take away? I think the book, uh, um, actually, I didn't do, uh, read so much graphic novels in the West, but this book, I think, have a lot of uh, mixed information about uh, personal experience, about the father and the son, and also about the mystical uh, uh, images about zodiacs, which can relate to uh, human character and also even relate to uh, political situation. Like this year is going to be a year of the dragon. In China, the year of dragon is supposed to be something very unpredictable. Can be, can be quite a big change or, or can be very, even very dangerous or harsh. So, you know, but, uh, you know, when you have 1.4 billion people believing in those things, and uh, that uh, is uh, made it a little bit accountable. Yeah, for those of our audience members who don't know, your father uh, and your family was basically exiled because he was a poet. And, and, and as you point out in the book, he wasn't really writing horrible things about the state or challenging the Chinese government, but you were still at one point living underground in the Gobi Desert. Is that right? For five years as a kid? True. He exiled for 20 years. I was born the year he was exiled. So we lived underground, you know, dug out uh, in Gobi Desert for five years under his clean public toilets. So he still today being considered as the most uh, popular poets, uh, very patriotic. You know, they, they later they give him, uh, uh, you know, honor back to him. But uh, still, uh, the kind of extreme situation when authority do not like your voice or do not like your even just the attitude, then uh, you're dead. You're, you're not possible. But we see this things also happens in the in US or in the West. Certain things is unspeakable. Certain things you cannot talk about. Um, even you believe the facts, the truth still that will endanger your life. And that is uh, that is uh, scary. You know, we have one life, and why we have to be uh, kidnapped by certain kind of um, beliefs, which we know is wrong. We know, you know, the facts and uh, the facts is obvious. We can easily uh, think this, we cannot allow it to happen to our family or to our kids or to our neighborhood or to the people we know, but we cannot speak out. 
What is about? How do we look at ourselves? What do you think that early experience of living with the consequences of how your father was treated? Do you think there's a connection between that and how you're living today? And I wonder if that also transmits down to your son. I think my situation. Uh, even my father would not exactly agree, but I think my life is an extension of his life. It's about the pays the price to speak out the truth, inner truth, or or to 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 stay on the you know on the factual side, and uh, that means you have to pay for that. That means uh, you know the so-called freedom is never come for uh, for free. It's really you someone have to pay for your freedom. And、uh, I hope I did this, and can change the situation a little bit better for my son. I don't want him to repeat my experience or his grandfather's experience. So, what is the world that you wish your son can grow up in? I mean, do you think that he can grow up in China as the son of Ai Weiwei and the grandson of your father, practice art, be free in his expression? My son's first English sentence is "No more I will." I was very proud. The first <laughs> first sentence, and the, I I for that moment I understand that he's very it will be a very good son, and he he will live a、uh, normal life, as he said. You know, he he wants to be a normal life. He doesn't really agree with what I'm doing, and、uh, I I I think the independence is the the true power. Power for every individual, but ah,、uh, but that's real. If you talk to someone, you can see the ideas or judgment. Very often, it's not a really independent judgment. You know, you didn't talk about your father much、uh, earlier in your career, and you mention him a lot more in this book. And I'm wondering, has something changed? Is it age, nostalgia? How come you're being a little bit more open about it now? Thank you, my husband. That I I always avoid to associate myself with him because、uh, we all know he's enemy of the state. Even I don't agree with that, but I still I don't want to know what he's really struggle for. You know, life、uh, is just、uh, it's so much burden, and、uh, but. Till I was arrested, sitting in this、uh, in front of an interrogator, and、uh, I realized eight years apart, we we come back to a full circle. So we still have to recognize as human being. Doesn't matter how advanced our technology or or how how mu- how much comfort we have. Still, we are in a very、uh, questionable or crucial condition. And we have to defend those very essential rights, you know, individual rights, human rights, and freedom of speech. You had recently put out a tweet about the situation in Israel and Gaza, and I, I want to read a little bit of it. It said,、uh, "The sense of guilt around the persecution of the Jewish people has been at times transferred to offset the Arab world." Financially, culturally, and in terms of media influence, the Jewish community has had a significant presence in the United States. 
The annual $3 billion aid package to Israel has for decades been touted as one of the most valuable investments the United States has ever made. This partnership is often described as one of shared destiny. Now, you have since deleted that tweet, but it had a ripple effect on art shows that you were about to have in major European cities, in London, in Paris. And I wonder, what did you think of that effect? I mean, the galleries that signed up to host your work, they know who you are. They know that you are uh, you know, politically challenging the status quo in almost every case. Well, uh, it's not about me. You know, it's about uh, the today we cannot allow any idea or voice which is different from the, the someone who would like those to be. So that even that is factual, that is uh, truth, they cannot accept the uh, gray area. They would ask you yes or no. They cannot say, and, uh, uh, otherwise it's not possible. Uh, so we come to a, a stage which is really about uh, uh, not allowed uh, freedom of thinking and the freedom of expression. So that is a very uh, troublesome time um, because we lost the foundation of uh, to have a civilized society, to to really have a, a patient and even to have a compassion for for someone being different and to think differently or to have a different voice. So I, I think this is a, a very troublesome time. Do you see this as something that's happening the world over? I mean, yes, there's your opinion on this specific conflict, but uh, are you concerned that there is a chilling effect on freedom of expression, not just in China, but in the West as well? I used, we used to think it's in authoritarian states, China or North Korea or probably uh, Cuba, you know. But uh, now we see what happens in the West uh, can be even uh, more surprising. It can be something we can never imagine. Uh, universities uh, has can be questioned by government and can be dismissed. This is absolutely a very bad sign for for so-called liberal uh, world or, or free world, and uh, that only shows the weakness of uh, our our beliefs, and we don't have this kind of. Um, uh, you know, how we look at ourselves if we cannot allow any argument. And uh, that, that is uh, very troublesome. You were in the United States in the 90s as a young man and you were going to school. And um, I've read that you were so fascinated by the Iran-Contra hearings that you were actually watching a government kind of publicly display this sort of house cleaning and, uh, and being transparent and open. And I wonder now, a few decades later, what do you think of sort of the American state of our ability to be open? Because we see challenges here in how our democracy is moving forward. Do you? 
I I see when I first time uh, hear Iran contract uh, hear, hear, uh, hearing I was pretty surprised, and uh, but I still uh, think uh, the society still holds justice and uh, open you know transparency and um, very high, but today not only the media but also uh, the just so called judicial system. And all become partisans, and they all are they. What they did is really uh, beyond uh, surprising, really. And I only make China and the Russian laughing about the West. You cannot. Uh, yeah, I, I, everybody would laughing. You know, China people when they talk about the U.S. is no longer to see as a, a land for the. For the brave and the liberals, but rather a uh, big corruption in, on both sides. So that is 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 such a backwards. And uh, the question is, what we trying to establish as a modern society uh, for years, uh, it will collapse at the one second. You know, you write in the book um, that there. Any artist who isn't an activist is a dead artist, and I wonder, in the climate that you're describing, if there is this kind of increased scrutiny on expression and freedom, how should an artist proceed when their work or their views might be in greater danger? Well, artist basically is a human being who is not a, a very practic practically functioning. And that's why their voice are, are very important because they they don't have to uh, to say something which against their their intuition or their sensitivity. But today's artists are very corrupted uh, because education, because the market, because the uh, you know capitalism, and made everything measured by price. So, um, so there's a very few artists willing to openly uh, just give out their opinions or to express it uh, successfully to you know to 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 communicate uh, with a artistic way you know to to give a, a, a unique position, and so that's the condition. Is what's your relationship to China now? Is there still a longing for, I don't know, a sense of home, or you know, you're not living there anymore? Uh, I'm not living there anymore. I don't have this kind of nostalgia feeling about China because I always been seen as someone uh, who is anti-revolution. So I've always been pushed away when I was in China, uh, even before I understand what what exactly they mean. But still, I'm a Chinese. I, I speak Chinese. I hold a Chinese passport. I never changed my nationality. That means I'm I'm a bit a stubborn person. I used to say I'm not. I don't want to leave. They should leave. But now I I left, and uh, I wish them well. And I I still pay attention to what's happening there. And uh, you know, I just wish them well. So. And you have made art, whether it's life vests to talk about um, the migrants that are coming on shore in Lesbos or 
a snake made of backpacks to think about the children uh, who were killed in the earthquake in China. How do you conceptualize a work to try to distill a big idea into something graspable? Uh, as artists, you need a, a certain materials and the form to to carry out your 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 expression or even argument. You know, I, I visited twenty nations and forty different camps, interviewed hundreds of in, uh, you know refugees. It's just preparing myself to to know better. Then, if I give a simple comp- conclusion, I think all those effort is trying to 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 give uh, uh, to give integrity to to uh, human conditions. You know, trying to recognize we are the same. You know, even we we look different. So yeah. I recognize that we should be uh, kind to each other or to. Uh, at least to to be have a compassion, and uh, uh, to you know, to, otherwise uh, we are we are still living in a very barbarian society. As there's no hope. Ai Weiwei, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And finally tonight, uncovering one of the world's greatest mysteries. Deep Sea Vision CEO Tony Romeo published sonar images of what appears to be a plane deep below the Pacific Ocean. And he's convinced that it is the wreckage of Amelia Earhart's final flight after she took off to become the first woman to fly around the world in July 1937, only to completely disappear. This new discovery is part of an $11 million expedition founded by Romeo to solve the decades-long mystery. But experts say that clearer images are required to determine whether the lost aircraft has indeed been found. So the quest continues. That's it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all across social media. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.